0: Disrupting Place acknowledges that we live and labor on indigenous lands. Manny lives and works on Cahuilla Territory, renamed the San Jacinto Mountains. Ashley and myself live and work on the unceded lands of the Gabrielino Tongva people, sovereign indigenous stewards of Tofengar, renamed the Los Angeles Basin and South Channel Islands. We offer this land acknowledgement as the first of many steps we all need to collectively take toward reparations. To learn about what unceded lands you are currently inhabiting, visit Native Lands Digital Mapping Project. We will have a link to this resource in our show notes.
1: Hi everyone, this is Disrupting Place, the podcast holding space for open and educational conversations about the relationship, tension, and gap between architecture and social justice. Hi everyone, I'm Ashley, an architecture and gender studies student, and my pronouns are she, her, hers, Aya.
0: Hi lovely folks, my name is Shada, I'm an educator-scholar, my pronouns are she, her,
1: Hello, everyone. I'm very excited for today's episode. I say that at the top of every episode, but I'm especially excited for today's episode because we are introducing our first guest on the podcast, and it is Ms. Catherine Hernandez. Um, I met Catherine fall of 2021 when I went on a field trip for my studio class, and we were. Uh, tasked with designing a community center for Community Coalition of South LA. I met her while she gave a chat to all of us. And let me tell you, I felt so validated and felt so seen when she started talking. She talked about being a part of NOMA. She talked about what it meant to continue being an advocate as a professional in the architecture field and what that meant to her as a woman of color, Uh, Growing up in South Central, and it finally felt like finally I'm listening to a professional talk about the things that I care about. And so I'm very excited to have Catherine here today. She was also recently on our second Women in Architecture panel at Cal Poly Pomona, which is meant to highlight some incredible women of color that are practicing architecture. So, Catherine, hello. I'm so excited for you to be here. And I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the audience.
2: Of course. Well, thank you for having me here today. And uh, thank you, Ashley, for making that connection. And I, I think, you know, it's a lot when I hear that it's inspiring or uplifting. Um, I think that's hopefully what I can do, right? Um, touch someone in, in that group. So, so thank you. And I really appreciate you. Um, my name is Catherine Hernandez. Uh, as Ashley mentioned, I am a South Central LA Native. Um, this is where I was born and raised. Uh, first generation and also the first person to graduate and go to college. So I think all of that means a lot to my family specifically, and it's a lot to carry with, you know. um, I practice architecture, um, specifically in the housing sector. So I do a lot of, um, what is it, uh, permanent supportive housing, affordable housing, uh, transitional housing at times, and low-income housing. So it's really the close to the gap in 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 housing justice and also um, just homelessness in LA LA County, but really I'm um, looking at all of Southern California.
1: Can you share your pronouns with us? Yes,
2: pronouns are she, her, and they. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Well, like every episode, we're gonna get started with a quick spoon check-in. So Shada, can you start us off?
0: How are your spoons today? Um, you know, I was sharing before we we press record that today is my first day back on campus in a terribly long time. Um, so I feel my spoon in actually, you know, I, my energy is good today. I'm feeling possibility. Um, yeah, I'm feeling good. How How are your spoons, Ashley?
1: Yeah, I would share my spoon count is a little low today. Um, If it's not totally obvious through my voice, I'm a little sick. But yeah, spoon count's a little below average, but I have a lot of energy, a lot of excitement for this episode. Um, Catherine, how about you? How how are your spoons today?
2: Uh, My spoons, I would say they're pretty high. Yeah, I think... um... The highlight would be today, talking to you both, but also I think just, I've I've been on site most of this morning and have seen a lot of good progress. So so pretty high about that, yeah.
1: That's awesome, I love it. Okay, so just to kind of introduce yourself a little more, um, you gave us like a brief intro about yourself, but I'd love for you to kind of chat with us and introduce yourself to the audience um, and talk about, you know, your life in South Central, what made you decide to go into architecture? You know, what was your academic experience like? Um, and kind of like where you got to, how you got to your position now.
2: Okay. Yeah, well, definitely. I think you mentioned um, us meeting right last year at COCO. Um, and for those of you listening, it's uh, short for Community Coalition, a nonprofit in South LA that was. Uh, Founded by now Congresswoman Karen Bass, who's also running for mayor, and um, initially started as a substance abuse uh, organization. And so I think that's really kind of where my story really begins. Um, My mother was an immigrant advocate and organizer, and she was 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 called at the org a parent organizer. And she did that obviously because she was an immigrant herself. And I think to be in the '90s, and late '80s, being in South LA, there was also a lot of violence, and and I think navigating just being an immigrant and navigating now navigating the neighborhood with violence, right, and having a language barrier. Um, my mom found, you know, a second home in community, a community coalition, and both of my parents eventually became involved. And I would say my mom mostly did all the heavy work um, and all the heavy lifting, you know, um, because she was also homemaker so that gave her a lot of time to really invest in in community work and organizing and um, so I grew up with going to Coco with my mom initially and it some of my you know I was too young to understand really what was happening I just thought my mom was going to work sometimes you know and and then eventually as I got older um, you know uh, I was there was no social media so it was Holding envelopes and canvassing, which still happens today, right? Door by door, and um, doing this long checklist of who are we missing? You know, um, we didn't have an Excel sheet or anything like that. And then I think, you know, as time progressed, it was also the very first place where I was able to use a computer and I didn't have one at home. So, you know, when you talk about the era of MySpace and things like that, like I was the probably the weird person who didn't have one until later in their life, I just didn't have a computer at home. And um, so COCO, you know, um, they do a lot of also youth organizing and adult organizing. Um, they they do a, a spectrum of things um, that really touch on a lot of things that have, that are oriented towards social justice and community rights as well. And so as I got older, I was able to join SEIA, uh, which is South Central Youth Empowered Through Action, and you know I was part of that group from seventh grade, I want to say, to high school. So a pretty extensive time, and I worked as a student on on campaigns. And um, I through I, I would say that through Coco and the SEIA programming, I I learned critical race theory, right? And so I learned you know about what was the Zapata movement? You know Who's Che Guevara? Uh, who are the Black Panthers? You know uh, What was the food stamp program? And I think so I, I learned a lot of insightful history that I wasn't learning And um, through that learning also came a lot of critical analysis of our current built environment in our district, wherever we were, right? So if I knew that I was on Manchester and Hoover or on Sinaloa and King, then I would look at those areas um, as a student and it, this was this was like a youth curriculum through community coalition and it you know and it was really to hold our council members accountable but also look at the uh, uh, look, look critically at where we were traveling through and, or, or to so if we were traveling and shopping outside of our neighborhood um, go to the mall or grab ice cream, it was like as a youth let's step back and why do you think do you do that? You know, without really having to tell us, you can do it for x reasons. And I think through that series of activities and then also learning about an earlier campaign that my mom was part of, um, who uh, it was um really shutting down liquor stores in our district because there was a study that they did where, um in our neighborhood, I think it was every four to five blocks you would have. Uh, a liquor store, but when you look at the west side, it's every mile and a half to three. So there was this disparity of why there is so much alcohol um, access, right, in our district where others are, not but there's food scarcity, so how do we leverage that? And I I really was passionate about that and understanding and thinking critically, and, and I think, to me, understanding political systems and policy seemed overwhelming, but very interesting. And... And then through that, I, I started really um, looking at my block specifically, um, because i I grew up in an apartment office, complex of twenty four units where there was a lot happening, a lot, a lot of violence, a lot of a lot of domestic violence, you know, a lot of poverty. And um, and then I also it was when when I was in high school, I was also traveling to the valley. Um, and, and I think that commute on the Metro just, it just seemed very stark, uh, to look at my neighborhood and then going to, you know, San Fernando and, and then seeing there's a lot more single family homes, um, you know, there's homes without windows, uh, bars their windows and, um, you know, there's apartment complexes without barbed wire at the top of their, of, of their base and there's no padlock or number lock or anything like that. And I, I started questioning why, right? So although that that learning moment at Coco had already completed and we were on to the next chapter, I was still thinking about those moments. And and then I think, you know, I was starting to think about college and, and they were, I think, just getting the mentorship from all the leadership at Coco. It was like, well, it sounds like you're interested in urban planning or... Architecture or something with the policy, possibly. And I think I started looking into all three, and I felt like architecture was my calling. And at the same time, I was actually, uh, I did one year of high school in my local high school in South LA, which is Fremont High, and then commuted out to Kennedy High School in Granada Hill because they had a magnet high school program that had an architecture drafting course. And I, that in itself was just uh, a completely different experience for me. It was a culture shock because for the first time I had, you know, white uh, counterparts in the classroom. I had Asian, you know, classmates, and and I was just used to the black and brown class, you know. And I I think that was a culture shock, but also a a, mom, a learning moment for me. Um, I took, so I ended up taking this drafting class for four for three and a half years, I think, and. And I, yeah, I think I, I just felt like this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. And, and I started model building and I entered a competition. And, and then after that, that's when I completely decided that architecture was what I wanted to do. And specifically from the policy lens. Um, and I think I remember that as I went to undergrad, because when I went to undergrad, it was completely different than what I imagined. Um, you know, we weren't talking about policy. We weren't talking about current land use problems. We weren't looking at real neighborhoods, um, I think, until the very last year. And we weren't looking at people-oriented solutions, necessarily, right? We, we would talk about them in hypothetical conversations or theoretical the, the, uh, theory, right? Like in theory. But, but I don't think we would talk about, well, there's this current SBX, you know, SB something or a bill that is this and how will this impact and let's talk about it, how did it applies to your studio, right? That that connection was never really made. And I think for me, um it felt very um like a heavy, like a lot of the work felt heavy because I was the you know, I was also the first person in my in, in my family to go to college. So I just didn't know what to expect, right? What was the style and I didn't have, um, while I did have COCO for community, I also was traveling to a school um, that wasn't in my district. So coming back to COCO, I would come too late sometimes to be in part of the CEIA meeting. Um, so I think high school was when I really, um, the last year of high school, I, I stopped being as heavily involved at COCO, but but really that's kind of when I, I decided that architecture was, was what I wanted to do. Yeah, wow. I'd love to.
1: You said a couple things that I related to or like stood out to me. So the first was the culture shock. I relate to that because I had, I had a similar experience. And I would say like our appearances are different. Like I'm very white passing and that has a lot to do with it. But I, um, for middle school, I went to my local middle school, which is like very black and brown, like very, very heavily black and brown. And I felt like, even though I was like very light-skinned, I would get my fun of it first here and there, I I felt like I was with my people, you know, like very part of the community. We all understood each other. We all talked to each other in Spanish, you know, made jokes, like it was like, we all fit in with each other. And then because of, you know, making transportation easy for me, my parents moved, my sister and I um, to a white high school, basically. Um, in a different part of the valley, like, where it's like higher income levels. Oh, totally different experience. And like every year I was like, our values are so totally different. They have parents that grew up here and grandparents that grew up here and own the house and pass you know, like things like that. And I'm like, we just like, I'm first generation. Like I don't have that history that you have here. It's, it was just so interesting to think about. Um, but it was definitely like very impactful on like what I was thinking about in class and like what I was doing outside of class in terms of like volunteering and stuff Um, and I still think about it because even though I was I can say I was very like naive you know in high school it was you know then going to community college and then going to Cal Poly which is still you know very diverse I was that experience in that high school was just like so starkly different from everything else. Um, do you want to speak on that a little bit? Yeah, like how that absolutely,
2: felt? Absolutely. I think, you know, I think, well, it's it's very layered because, you know, my dad wasn't he was still undocumented, so he he didn't have a license, right? And so he wasn't allowed to be a driver, right? This was before A B 60. And um he also, and then we didn't, we wouldn't travel within, I would say, eight miles of our neighborhood, like H Huntington Park to go shop. If you live in South LA, you know Huntington Park. You go to Huntington Park, come back. Um, maybe Fox Hills Mall in, you know, uh, what's it, uh, like adjacent to Inglewood, Ladera Heights, but we wouldn't go any further than that. Um, we are our main use of transportation was Metro, really. That's how I learned how to understand our city really and our county. Um, so going to the valley, let me start by telling you, I my my pickup, my bus pickup was at 5.50 and it wasn't at home. It, I had to take Metro to the school bus stop. And so that mean, that meant that I was waking up at 4 a.m., you know, and this is for just a better education access, right? And because we didn't have any of these electives offered to us in, in South Lake. So I was waking up to take this to take metro. I would walk, I think I was actually uh, three blocks from the apartment complex where I lived with my mom because it was at 4 4 30. You know, it's dark. I live in a neighborhood where potentially I could be assaulted. Um, and and then I would take the metro to the school bus stop and then I had to be there at 5 50. The bus would only wait five minutes. And if I missed it, that was kind of like I the first time it happened, I missed school. The second time my mom said, you're gonna figure out a way to get there. You cannot leave (laughs) school, you know? So I had to learn (laughs) the second time it happened. I had to take three, I think it was three buses or four, um, including Metro, like Metro lines to get to Kennedy. And and I think once I was there, I was uh, lonely. I I would tell you that, like I didn't, I didn't feel like I found community. And I, I was also, everyone on the school bus with me had actually traveled to the valley since they were in elementary school. So they all knew each other. And you know, I was the outsider in that school bus because I was for the first time going stepping into their lives in high school. And so I didn't have many friends. And I I think I was also interested in learning because for the first time I was having people who come from different came from different backgrounds, right? And I had access to because they sat next to me, right? So while I think I still didn't understand wealth, right, and and privilege, but I I was understanding they're different. That was like to me, oh, they they don't get it, you know. Um, and I think late until maybe possibly after graduated high school, I was like, oh yeah, they come from you know they're second gen or they're homeowners or you know which are all great things, but I just couldn't relate to, you know. Um, and and then coming back home. Um, I, I, I would the bus would come back home maybe 4:30, 4:30 uh, or 5. I was also the because I was the first pickup. I was also the last drop off, and and that was on a regular school day. But then I became involved in activity, Right, I was a swimmer all my life, so I played water polo, I swam, I played soccer, and then I was part of Skills USA, uh, which actually has an architecture competition. Right, and and then becoming part of those after school activities. And then there was a late school bus at 7 p.m. and I would get home at 10 30. So you can imagine, like 10 30, and then I would, I had the nightlight to do like my schoolwork on, on the bus and then i get home and I still do some more schoolwork. And then I had to wake up the next day again, 4 a.m. and do the whole thing. And was it worth it? Yes. Would I do it again? No. Like, <laughs> like I think now I have a younger sister and I think. Part of advocacy is, you know, I want my sister to have access to those classes without having to leave our district. And something that's very important, and I continue to share, is that at that time too, um, one of the campaigns that I worked on was the A3G campaign, and it was because in South in South LA and some adjacent districts, we our schools, our high schools, did not have the A3G courses that were required to go to a four-year college. So that meant that everyone, including myself, who were attending our local schools, we were going to jC's and or we were going to trade schools, right? And that's just because how the system was set up, which is, you know, when we talk about equity, it is not equitable at all. And so I think, you know, working on this campaign, I think I, for maybe four to five years, and then finally winning it felt like equity was coming. you know, And meanwhile, I would say some of my friends who I went to middle school with um, didn't have the same courses, right? Or didn't have the same path to go to higher uh, ed. And I think that's that's important, right? And it's why I continue to do advocacy work, whether it's housing, education, or anything that really impacts my family, myself, and those who I care about, because not everything is something that sometimes about the built environment, sometimes it's about the policy and education. And um, so I think that's where this I, I think about like architecture. Where did it really start? But I feel like every year I just go. It goes further back. You know, it goes further back to me being a child and growing up in a comp, an apartment complex that where housing wasn't equitable to other apartment complexes outside of our district, right? And I could think about um, living in South LA and uh, walking to elementary and middle school because I walked to both and walking through a number of vacant lots that had been vacant every year that I would walk by. No development was happening. And then as I got older, I mean, I walk by now and they're still vacant, you know? And, and then also I think having a, I would see some of my neighbors who did have a car and were, you know, citizens um, like travel outside and come back with maybe toys or books or, you know, things that I didn't have access to. And, and then that also just was just, uh, kind of like, why don't we have access to that, you know, here? And so I think when you think about it, it has, I think it's been a trajectory, lifelong path of micro attacks right, <laughs> or micro uh, inequities, right? That have compiled over time and, and, and has led me to the work that I do now. And I think that's why I'm really so passionate about it because I know that I'm not the only one. And there are many of us who experience very similar um, lifestyles and inequities and in, in in different sectors, right? Whether it's housing or uh, food or health policy even. Um, but yes, that's, I think, when you talk about culture shock, I think it was just, um, I was experiencing culture shock, but also experiencing, um, I would say, like, exposure I would say yeah like it was exposure to different cultures at the same time that I had no familiarity with
1: yeah I it's a lot it's very layered another thing that I wanted to go back and touch on is your experience um, in college with like the lack of conversation and dialogue about public policy about the people specifically and not so much the design, because I also felt that way. Um it felt like, you know, every, every old at Cal Poly, um, and I'll speak for myself, right? Like maybe my classmates had a different experience, but, you know, at, at Cal Poly every year, there's like each studio is like a different focus, right? To really build up your skills. Um and I think I particularly felt when we got to the housing semester, and this is in spring of third year it was like talking about form and like we were talking a little bit about construction documents things like that but I was like I don't really know what to do because we're not really talking about who lives here like we're obviously gentrifying this corner (laughs) this corner and like I think it was West Hollywood or something like our project would have been just like this drastically new development um compared to what everything else looked like. And I don't think that they liked that I was asking so many questions about like what we were doing because the point was just to design the thing. But I'm like, I can't design the thing if we are not talking about the people that live there in apartment complexes or townhouses that have been there for like 60 years, you know? It just like, doesn't make sense to me really. And The community is totally different to the residents that we're supposedly designing for and like the clientele that we're looking for. And so it was just like, it was like a very drastic, like wake up call for me that I was like, they're not going to offer me this sort of um, information or this opportunity to study what I want to study myself. I wouldn't say it's not welcome, but to me, it wasn't encouraged at all. And we talk so much about precedence and do all these readings before you come to class on Monday and and all this stuff. But there was like so little conversation about like who lives there already and like would our project actually serve people that already live there or would it just push them out and welcome new people that could afford it?
0: I mean, I think it's such a such a profoundly telling thing that you are, you're both sharing around a lack of conversation about who are the body minds that are occupying this space and what are their experiences and what might they need? Because as, as I was listening to both of you speak, I wrote down preferred tenant question mark, and then I wrote down normative tenant, right? Like it sounds like, um, there is a very clear understanding of who our preferred tenants are and Catherine as you were speaking I was taking the timeline in my head back to like 1940s 50s 60s when like redlining was very um was was a very common way um of regulating who lives in what neighborhoods, right? Very much like rooted in white supremacy, but this idea that like where you live and how much property tax you pay then impacts and touches everything from like, do you own this home? Is it generational wealth? To how are the schools in your area? To how long do you live? Um, Comparatively, and so those are those are some of the things that are coming into my 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 mind as you both are speaking. But um, I know we're going to talk about intersectionality in a little bit, and so I definitely want to bring back this idea of like who are the preferred bodies identities that we want in these spaces. Um, and you know, somebody mentioned this in one of my classes. It was an architecture major, um, and it was a class session where we were talking about like public space and how public space isn't for everyone. We have an idea that it is, um, but really public space is um, regulated in different ways that doesn't make it accessible for everyone. She was sharing that usually lighting is one of the last things that's decided on um, on the exterior of a building. And yet lighting is one of the things that keeps a lot of like Women identified folks and other people um safe when they are engaging with building space. So this is this is still true.
2: Yeah, that is very true. Yeah. Like in the order of architectural drawings, right? If you just think yeah. about like technical, you're gonna you are going to we will take the ARE. Yes, lighting is one of the very um architectural like last piece, yeah. It's yeah. It, first it's like the floor plan, egress, you know, um you even have uh, Floor finishes and uh, bathroom accessibility. Then at the end, you have your lighting. Your wow. lighting and then sometimes, you know, there are lighting designers who are, this is their profession, right? And dedicated to extracting drawings from architects or interior designers. And they do their own lighting. And sometimes there isn't a budget for a lighting designer at all because it's looked as an extra plus, you know, plus package. Um, and this is for roughly, I would say, like private. Building. Uh, commercial buildings usually do have a, a lighting designer but yes that is very true you mentioned redlining uh, mm. which is the reason why right um, our neighborhood like South LA has a lot of apartment complexes and um, and not a lot of single family homes um, that is a result of redlining right and I think Something that just came up, I thought of right now was um, when you made the school connection was even when we do residential or any type of development near a school, there's a school fee every time when you go get a permit, right? And that goes to LAUSD. So the more development happens around, you know, a better well-off district, the more funding that's going
1: mm.
2: to that school, essentially, yeah. So I think, you know, I think parents also choose to move into a neighborhood because of school systems and and things like that you know it's something that my parents didn't know or were aware of you know I think anywhere outside of the country just felt better right <laughs> and I think a uh, result I think there's there's just so many little things that are tied together right like not knowing that developing a multi-family home commercial complex building is gonna bring wealth into a school. It's a big, it's a big thing, you know, and it it could be a big disservice for schools around in our district that have no development and it's all just residential, possibly or you know, so so it is all tied to policy, but I think also there there are accountability buckets within each profession. and 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 I think within ours, you know when you talk about academia, actually going back to your question, um, I did have. Uh, a studio, also, a housing studio, and it was before Fort Street Bridge was knocked down and before it was determined that it was even going to be demolished. And um, it was uh, let's let's use let's use the skeleton of the bridge and create housing and how how it would suspend essentially from the bridge and what it can do right. And i I think it the the underlying. Oh, the only underlying human aspect of it was how do we connect one side of the neighborhood to the other side? And that was it. We're not talking about the demographics, right? We're not talking about our district being this young, um, you know, neighborhood that's currently, uh, I mean, I think it's still going under, under gentrification. But then on the other side, you have Boyle Heights, like a working class neighborhood, right? And very different to each other. So I think that was a big miss in, in that course. Right. And I think, you know, I think when I did do this project, I did come similarly to you from a a policy aspect and also not not only a policy, aspect, but a human aspect. Right. Like what happens to Mm -hmm. the communities? How do people interact? Who are the people living here? Because when I think of a bridge and you're giving me good feedback on a unit that I created that looks like I can't even afford it, then who is it for, you know? It, it looks like it's only for one side of the fridge and not the other. Mm-hmm. and and you know, I think people who continue to enable um, that part of design are also our crits for like, like like the people the jury, right? the people who sit on this. And I think now there there is I've seen a lot of people who maybe criticize the project, that project specifically. In a negative way for me, have come around and their thoughts are completely different now, right? They believe in equity, they want to support social justice. And I think that's positive overall, but it did take some growth. And meanwhile, you know, how many graduating classes experience that course with no people relation? And I think not all of us also have come from an impacted neighborhood. So maybe making that connection is even harder, right? Like if you came from privilege, well but want to learn about social justice and equity and you're not learning that through studio, then you're even more disconnected. So when you go out in the industry, it's harder to come back you know, and learn about it and, and, and take the step. So I would say, um, yeah, I, I experienced something very similar. And uh, I remember I had a conversation with one particular professor who, who said, uh, yeah, like we are here to design the structure and we have to, you have to be able to prove, right, that it's also um, sustainable and and that it, how many units and what's the, we're we're focused on the unit, right, and 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 I think to me I was just frustrated because I was, it was also good feedback. My unit was doing well, right. It, everything was sign was good. The render looked good, but I just wasn't happy about it because it was a big, the big piece was people, and. I think I still look at that portfolio piece and I'm just so unhappy about it all the time because um, I'm like, this is not people oriented at all. And how do we continue to harm community? right? Um, We can disassociate ourselves from policy when our whole industry is predicted by policy, right? The fact that we have to go and get a permit, right? There is someone who decided that and policy predicts that, right? Uh, we have building codes that is policy and uh, we have you know accessibility requirements and green requirements those are all policies so we can't say that our work is not policy oriented when it is it's what predicts what gets built and what doesn't get built
1: yeah again a million things are coming up for me but just to end this kind of note on education um, Yeah, I just think it's interesting when people say like it doesn't belong in the classroom or it's like maybe not so related to architecture, but like what is architecture if it's not for people like what a strange thing to say, and I think it like most especially belongs in studio and design because, like you said, like it's all informed we're already being informed by policy. And supposedly policy is informed by people. If you don't learn it in the classroom, why would we expect professionals to apply it in their everyday? Kind of now going, I guess we'll kind of go like life from education now to professional. Um, I don't know if you're comfortable like sharing the story that you shared with us. Um, Last fall, you kind of talked about how you worked for a specific firm that was developing in South LA and what that experience was like. And then maybe kind of going into where you are now.
2: <laughs> the reason, actually, I'll start with this. I'll, the reason why I pivoted to housing um, was because I actually, I initially started working with very high-end residential homes, right? So multi-million dollar homes for a family of five or six sometimes. And, and it was a stark difference for me to be in this office, in this high-end firm, right? With And, and designing and drafting and taking materials and meeting clients and then going back home to an apartment complex with my parents, where our neighbors are going through similar, you know, inequities, and it's telling, right? The environment is telling. So it was just it just felt disconnecting, and I had no passion in, in that work. While I did learn, it was a learning moment, and um, and I think I was dedicating so much of my time outside of work to housing uh, justice organizations already, um, whether it was through advocacy, canvassing, you know, um, membership meetings, that it just felt right to pivot into that. Not every developer is a good developer and not everyone in housing justice is there for justice. And I think this was one of those moments, right, where I thought I had to somewhere that was going to do good for our neighborhood, um, specifically, you know, on Manchester, Vermont intersection um, after the 1992 civil unrest, the the lot has been vacant. And it is, you know, I wanna say two to three blocks wide. And it used to be a very, uh, it used to be the economic corridor for, for that district, District 8, and it was, Historically, and also a Black corridor because there was a lot of Black owned small shops. And after the unrest, and every, you know, it was burned down, and then the developer, the owner actually decided to not invest back into the neighborhood. But every five to six years, there would be a shovel or some kind of groundbreaking where they would, like, I think I remember the last one I attended was in 2013, maybe. 2011 possibly and i remember i went and they had um abc7 was there all the news outlet right and and then you have you know an event and um you display a series of renderings with the future what what the future will hold and and you show the neighborhood something that looks like the grove right which You know, the growth can be problematic, but for a district that has been lacking economic development, this is what you want, because it's not only going to create jobs, but it's also going to bring shops that you can advocate for, right, whether they're locally owned or whatsoever. I think that moment was very exciting for everyone, because there was so much media coverage that it felt very real, right? And then years went by, um, they demoed the only thing that was left in that lot, which was a playlist, and then everything was skated off. Nothing happened, right? And we're talking about like twenty five years after the civil unrest. And so here I am working for this housing developer now as a practicing, you know uh, architectural profession. and the county, eventually, because the owner never came back and developed the lot, the county took the the ownership um, the land from them. And by doing that, then they were able to negotiate for to have a series, um, some housing and a boarding school. And before that, there was just a series of community meetings that you know the community organized and and also Coco supported was um, to really predict what was going to happen with the lot, what did people envision, how can we come back to that rendering that was initially shown by the owner, you know, and uh, what kind of business. We, we see here and who can we involve of existing existing vendors you know and and i think as that conversation developed um i was engaging on outside of work hours because i still live in this district that's i still care you know my cousins my family my all of my family lives in that district so i know that this is going to be impactful for everyone i'm on the also on the other side with a developer right who's going to develop this and i know that a school is coming and nobody wants a school. <laughs> Eventually nobody wanted a school because there had been two new schools in within a mile radius of the of the of the development and there were already four existing schools so now we have six a, a sixth school or seventh school um, within 1 mile radius and and it was taking a big portion of the lot and i think something that was also problematic was just that metro was coming in and promising jobs right and uh, to young people and this would be a a young hub, but then also the person who was given the opportunity to develop a school is a school that is not established within California period right Mm -hmm. and has um, I think something that was concerning to the neighborhood was that there was public accusations of assault to students because it was a boarding school and so it's like okay there was you you're proposing a school there are issues at the only school that exists. How did you fix those issues? And what are you going to bring that's different to our neighborhood? And they weren't able to answer those questions. They seemed too problematic, or they seemed like we need some time and come back for the next but they were never answered. So people were very unhappy about it. And then, so then the school was the client uh, at the firm where I was working. And so here I am, you know. 8 a.m. drawing the school and then I have to go at 6 p.m. And I'm like against the school at the same time, you know, and and or not against it, but just trying to negotiate what how, how can we bring back that economic development that once exists, existed. And I think just within our studio, there were very problematic conversations about since you live in that district and we know that most of the people in your district have been incarcerated at some point. Or because you live in the strict district, right? and we know that most a lot of people in the district are violent right and i think both assumptions just weren't at that moment i i was more assertive and confident where i was like this is not okay and you can't then if you really want to hear from people you have to engage in because the the, the 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 org was just removed from all the engagement needs. they weren't Carrying back all the data or information, sometimes that was being advocated for by the residents. Um, and through that advocacy, then it, it just became problematic for me to be continue to be in the studio where my core values did not align with the firm, right? And the people, although you know they were, I think one team member was a person of color, they were completely removed, like. We didn't understand the neighborhood. We didn't understand the context. Never went out on site on to walk the neighborhood, and it's something that I highly encourage all the time. We should, you know, we should make the effort if we really care about, you know, the portfolio and the the impact that we're going to make on people. So then we should take a walk before any of this, not when construction starts. Let's go now, you know. And it was something that was never done, and I that's when I ended up leaving the studio because I just felt. There is no way I'm going to build housing without making that engagement with people, or without, or at least hearing that data and conversations back, you know, from the engagement team. And if you want to assume and tokenize me or anyone else, then I'm definitely not supportive of that as well. And that's when I transitioned over, and I can tell you nothing but good things from where I am now. <laughs> So now, I think now to you know to end it on a positive note, I I am in a nonprofit organization that does uh, housing justice and equity, and that looks in many that looks for uh, in many different uh, what say sectors. And you know, um, I work very closely with case managers and social workers. So a lot of those, I I think you know the problem is I, I like to say like it's all up on your face, right? Because you. We're not, you're not isolated in our architecture studio it's it's an open studio but we're not all architects I have you know a social worker a case manager um someone who's uh, doing tenant rights across from me there's a whole policy uh, team who I engage with like on a monthly basis as well and we talk about the new um Senate bills that are coming out right and how will they impact whether it's zoning land use housing tenant rights um so and, anything that has to do with housing, And I think that's important. They really do make an effort as well to create um, activities of engagement. And and I think that's what really housing organizations or developing firms should be doing because making assumptions and just looking at a Google map and working from a site drawing is not enough. Um, It is a disservice. And and to think of even our studios, right? It's also kind of like Forgetting that studio culture because in studio culture it's like let's study these precedents, let's read you know um, these you know series of books or whatever and and then this is your client and then learn about this client and their needs and now design it right and it's and I think at that previous studio it's we knew what the client who the client was but we were not trying to learn about them we didn't we weren't invested in meeting their needs we were invested in Meeting the needs of the the owner, right, or developer, you can say, and and I think when you do that, then you're just in it for the money, right? To get, um, I think at some point one of the units that that was proposed for the, at the previous firm, there was a a five foot wide living room, right? Mm-hmm. And who lives in a five foot wide living room? Just because you've been houseless houseless all of your life, it doesn't mean. That you deserve the bare minimum because you should be grateful that you're going to be out. And it's it's just I think when I looked at that, I was like, well, this is bad design, period. You know, like <laughs> like there is no reason why this person should feel like they're walking through a corridor to get to their living room or or kitchen. And I think now at the firm that I am, we we write. You know, I, one of my responsibilities is is writing design guidelines, right? And and design guidelines I think sometimes are kind of a check list for architects. Okay, we have a bathroom that's accessible, um, we have uh, enough windows, whoa, whoa, whoa. whereas this, this the space where I am at now, um, it's more let's slow down. What does this mean if we're housing women, right, because we do that sometimes where we, but the, the building is dedicated to women and or family. And when we say family, sometimes that a lot of the time it looks like single mother, Right, and I think something that I shared with your group was that through uh, talking to clients, right, like single mothers or women who have experienced homelessness, uh, chronic homelessness, whether it's single or with their children, uh, there's just this reoccurring experiences of sexual assault um, or assault in general, and and one of the the conversations is, you know, our 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 laundry space is at the end of the building. And it's dark walking down the corridor. The laundry doesn't have any windows. And it's an it's a predatory area, right? Like it's the perfect area to assault someone. And so then from those experiences and those engagements um, with our community members and our clients, then we were able to write that into a design guidelines. We cannot have a laundry space in a dark area at the end of the building. Like that, that. You know we are hearing this directly from people. And then if we're also hearing, you know, um, I think the other one, you know, lighting, you mentioned lighting, Shada, and it's something that I also bring. It is a last minute thought, right? But it's also important because it's what's gonna make or break your space at the same time. And especially for someone for a vulnerable community, not just someone, for a vulnerable community, I think it's also highly important. You want enough lighting for it to be bright, but you don't you don't want it to be too much lighting for it to be to feel that you're being watched, right? Mm-hmm. That you're in a in a correction center. And so I think making that stark difference and that pivot from one studio to another it just really also made a, a big life change for myself because now I'm coming to work a lot more motivated. You know, when I say my schools are high, it's, 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 I would say it's, it's a result of the positive work that comes out of the studio and, and, and also culture. So housing is important. <laughs> You
0: know, I'm also thinking about how because I feel like we've talked a lot about social justice on our podcast and we've talked about disability justice, but I'm so grateful that you are talking about housing justice and just the humanity that needs to be brought back into all spaces, but especially in the space of architecture and thinking about um, where we live. And so that's, I mean, that's, I just wanted to thank you for this conversation because I'm learning so much Um, and I think you're so clearly and expertly bringing together so many of the conversations that we've had over the last few months around why it's important to bring these conversations to this particular um,
2: space. Yeah, there's. uh, I think I there's definitely. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, right? It's it's always exciting to hear about. um, I think especially being in a space with cross pollination, right? I think it's always great. Um, I don't know if you have seen this, but there's also um, actually a collective that recently started, and it's um, social workers who design, and and it's great, you know, because there's so much. To learn from social work that, that almost as an architect, we have to step back, right? Because if there are social workers who are designing and who wanna collaborate, that's amazing. We need to hear from them, right? And we need to have them on board in studios. We need to bring them in as consultants. Um, but also it also speaks to the lack of compassion sometimes and humanity in our industry because if there was a reason why social workers could be signed had to be me it's because there's an existing problem, right? And I think, you know, um, lucky enough, I I think there are so many, I think, I think I've learned so much from the people that I grew up with in my apartment complex. I always go back to that, you know, I, I think, you know, um, the reason why, I feel like I'm very passionate specifically also about housing, specifically women, and whether it's single mothers um, or or single women in general. And it and it's because just women experience a lot of domestic violence and it's sometimes unspoken, right? And and I think living in an apartment complex, I was as a child and as a teen, I was always exposed to that, to hearing a neighbor, hearing cops, you know. Um, you know, and and it's a reoccurring, it's not a, like it happened once, you know, I think for DV, it, it's an ongoing problem. And until someone, until one of the partners says, oh, this is a problem, or they realize that it's a problem, right? Or, or they're ready to get help. And I think the result of just seeing all those issues, right, and trauma, I, I want to come from a trauma-based, informed, um, like, aspect. And, or lens and and I think a lot of a lot of those decisions sometimes there aren't people like us to make them and I think I, I am fortunate now to be in in that space where I can say yes this laundry has to be moved right and and I part of my job is now to also onboard other architect architecture firms uh, and to hire them to to work on these projects and so if I'm distributing distributing a defined guideline. can you imagine if there was someone who is you know I think well I mean I, I can't even say can you imagine because it has been there, you know like someone who's in this position of power and or leadership and then they are completely removed. their design guidelines are going to look completely different than what I have written and others have too, right and how much contribution has in collaboration has gone. Um, but you can easily be isolate, I, I like, I have, is, like, it's my decision whether I want to isolate myself, write something down and distribute it, or if I want to collaborate with everyone who is at our org, like social workers, who are working with clients on a day-to-day basis, right? And, and really, I think I continue to learn from them all the time. Um, and, and I think that's kind of uh, right now with the pandemic has made it difficult, right? Because we're not sharing that work environment anymore. We're all in digital space. But you have to go out of your way to make that connection. Otherwise, I think you're doing a disservice to not only, not a person, but to community.
1: That was amazing. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. And um, of course, again, like there's just so many, I feel like layer, like each of those issues are so layered. Like for example, like the domestic violence issue, especially within communities, um, like, hours like that um, or we have to think about like being documented and like what that means if those people are first generation or if they just immigrated here or you know like what that means in terms of employment and all those things and so I really appreciate how you're bringing it up because it, it makes it so um, at least for me like very clear how they're interrelated um, and how having that information is so helpful and important to what we do um whether it's in vulnerable communities or not right because something like domestic violence happens to literally can happen to literally anyone i think in sort of issues like that it's interesting to think about how it's also our lack of involvement our lack of bringing it up just enables this the those situations to continue
2: right yeah they they really do and you know, um, I, I feel like as much as I learn from my colleagues, right, who are in different sectors, I feel like I also learn a lot from our clients um, who have lived experience in whatever, you know, uh, whatever it is, whether it's trauma or trauma-informed or not. And it, I think it's so easy for, I think, our industry to hire so many consultants um, to restrict ourselves from making that person like person a person interaction, which is very sad if you think about it, right? Like I think it, there's this I don't know if it's capitalistic or if it's American, really like this this thought that if you're in an office environment and if you're behind a computer, you've kind of made it and you don't have to get out of that office setting, right and and you're you have a pretty good job obviously, right. Um, but I think by doing that, and isolating ourselves in the studio, we're just trapped in a bubble, right? And we're lying to ourselves about what we are creating, right? We can think that we're creating, like you mentioned, a public space for everyone, but because we're not making that interaction with people, we, we're we only making a space based on what we know, right? And not really understanding those who live there, who, who will experience it. And I think, you know, um, I also worked on a series of permanent supportive housing buildings. And I think those are sometimes the most difficult projects to work on because the community is very diverse. We have young people, we have older veterans, we have mothers, you know, um, and the, their path to homelessness is, is different, you know? And, And uh, I remember this one specific project I worked on, um, it's on in in Skid Row and I think it's on Sixth and I'm sure I wanna say. And this specific building had a tenant who, so I, part of my job was to also move them in. So once they're in, like, you know, construction has finished uh, all of our meetings, our construction meetings are completed. And so now I'm doing the tenant move in and And part of that was because we didn't hire an interior designer. So I was also responsible for furniture, equipment, fixtures, right? And uh, making sure that it's there. But the sponsor, who is usually, um, you know, organizations that uh, provide services, they also wanted us to check whether a tenant uh, wanted or not some of the furniture that we were providing. And by doing that, you know, you really get to learn from people and and hear from them sometimes they like to share stories or want to invite you in and and I I think that was the very first year when I learned a lot just because one woman who I I I shared a lot of time with throughout the construction of the of, of the building and she she shared how she shared, I, I, I'm actually from South LA too, you know, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, and where did you grow up? And she said, I grew up on Massachusetts, oh, which is four blocks away from where I live, you know, and we were, our age difference was only five years, so not too far, you know, and then we went to the same elementary school, same middle school, we went to the same high school, like with the same, the same high school that I had started with, right, my home school, and then art path in life were completely different, right? Like we all went to the same school, same district, you know, and and I think as I started hearing her story and just all the violence that she had experienced, it, it, it was a moment for, I think my colleagues who also learned that this could be their neighbor, but they had never taken the time or space to share time and space with them. And, and, I, I felt like this could have also easily been me, you know? i I come from the same demographic. I same education, you know, um, obviously, there were some some differences, right? but but I think just I think that experience in particular was so close to home that it 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 just made the work a lot more important, right? because it 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 was so close to my community that it felt like. You know, if my dad would have lost his job, maybe I wouldn't have gone to school. Um, something so a, a very minute right step that could have changed my whole path. And you know, I think because of that, I, I, I think sometimes people ask me still today, how do you do? How do you do it? You know, you're in this profession, but it, like stay like stay humble, you know, or or stay connected. And I, uh, I think my response is my parents are still in that same building where i want to live like the reality of life is still in my face right like i still go like i visit my parents my my sister lives there like the people i care about are still there and the conditions are still the same so the conditions are still the same then there's a lot of work to do and and that's what continues to not inspire me but keep me passionate about the work right and keep me grounded i would say because my, you know, my parents are not citizens. Um, you know, my parents are, don't have access to wealth. <laughs> like we're still trying, you know, and I'm still the, like the only working professional in my household. So, so what does that mean? It means sometimes that I do have a lot of responsibilities outside of work, right? But I think that's what keeps me in check.
0: I kind of, so I'm hearing this really powerful, intervention that housing justice is offering but tell me if this is like if this language aligns with the practice um so and I think you mentioned like oh I don't know if this is connected to capitalism but I think it totally is like the idea we were talking about a few weeks ago was interdependence and this idea that like Independence is something that's pushed and taught to us, but really, we all live such reciprocal lives, um, and that's powerful, and it sounds like the normative way of doing architecture is very removed from human need, and in that way, it's very paternalistic, like, I'm just going to put here what I think you need um or what's going to be good for this space um as opposed to really talking to the people that are living in that area and so i'm wondering then if housing justice really embraces interdependence um you know architects working in community and collaboration and reciprocity with the communities that they are going to be building in um, yeah, I'm wondering if that language like applies.
2: It does. It definitely does apply. Yeah, I I, I would have to agree that um, it is a very independent. Um, I think you know it's it's contradictory. I would say because I think they say architects always work in teams. They always collaborate, but those those teams are internal teams, right? These are your coworkers. <laughs> and other professional affiliates, affiliate, right? So they're not people who are not non professionals or with an architecture background. So when they do, when they say, when architects say something that they cross, cross collaborate, right, they're talking about structural engineers, some, like Title 24 consultants, they're not talking about a social worker or a case manager or you know, um, a community organizer who knows and understands the context of the neighborhood. So, so I think in that sense, I 100% agree with you. I think the language is appropriate.
1: Uh, I, I really appreciate all that. And I feel like we're kind of, we've been talking about it, but I'd love, <laughs> we've kind of been talking about it the whole time. Um, but I'd love to take a moment, like I always do, and ask Shada to please explain or kind of like. Really um, formally say what we've been saying. And this is that, you know, housing justice, like many other social movements, um, are an intersectional issue. And we've kind of talked a little bit about specifically who is the tenant and who is our client. Um, but what do those circumstances mean to us? And how can we better understand people by understanding their intersectionality?
0: Yeah, when you said that, I was like nodding my head as in like, yes, we've totally been talking about this this whole time. Um, But yeah, just for like clarity and to get grounded in the idea and the concept. um, So I think like last season, we were talking about intersectionality as this really important concept that a um, constitutional scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw came up with and you know it's this really um and just visual note for everybody we're all like nodding (laughs) we're all nodding like yes kimberly crenshaw um it's this really powerful idea that um because we're all made up of multitudes of identities not just one um, we all are going to experience layers of systemic pre- oppression differently, and she kind of, in her, in her TED talk, offered um, like an intersection at a street um, as an image for us to understand how, for example, um, a black woman is going to experience at the same time sexism through this patriarchal structure we live in but she's also going to experience racism um, through this white supremacist culture that we live in and that's a very unique intersection that we didn't really have a framework to name you know in kind of reflecting on the conversation that we've had and um, that catherine you've guided us through i think about intersectionality in space and in housing in terms of not only um, the concepts of like racialization and communities of color and where where do folks live. I'm also thinking about class. Um, so I, for example, went to graduate school in Claremont, which is not very far from Cal Poly Pomona. Um, and I lived in the city of Pomona, which for folks that haven't been, Claremont is called the City of Trees. There there is greenery everywhere. There are no potholes in Claremont, or if there is, it's quickly filled. Um, You know, like generational wealth, um, you know, all of that is incredibly present and it's not in Pomona. Pomona is predominantly a community of color, um, immigrant community, low income, Lots of apartment buildings kind of speaking back to some of the stories you were sharing, Catherine. Um, And at the same time, if we were going to apply an intersectional lens to Pomona or to South Central, we would have to talk not just about the space and the communities that live there, but the ways in which like space impacts health um so schools or apartment buildings that are built on brown zones or like dumps that are flattened and then homes or schools are built on top of them um you were mentioning food deserts earlier and having to like take the bus out of your your home town in order to access food um you know fruits and vegetables i'm also thinking about how um Going back to the idea of like, what's the preferred tenant, I'm thinking about the intersectionality of folks of color who also might be trans or non-binary and what it means to um, enter into spaces and try to apply for a home when the normative idea of who a preferred tenant is is, is most certainly cisgender. Um, And then I'm also thinking about how disabled folks, um, low income, um, underemployed disabled folks experience um, tremendous intersectional issues um, when thinking about housing um, and access to housing. And so those are some of the thoughts that come up. But again, these are all the things that, Catherine, you've already kind of walked us through and kind of empowered us to think
2: about. Feel like every topic that you mentioned has like a its own conversation. I think of them all under the umbrella of health and social justice, right? Um, something that I I I very much dislike is uh, the transitional housing that is currently being offered for a lot of homeless folks. And there's the there's these little eight by eight shelters um, that prefabricated and then shipped over and then they they put insulation in them like a little HVAC in them and then and that's kind of it right and I actually had a colleague who shared how um, it's illegal to have a cell that is sm- uh, smaller than that like that scale or smaller so we're housing people in transitional housing that is not even legal for those who are incarcerated you know and not that those who are incarcerated deserve any less right but you know something that i have a conversation with my partner all the time is just the the social, the, the impact the health impact that it that it really creates just the based on where you live and this is only to housing and then there's environmental right we can really talk about oil drilling and, and being in Southeast LA, right? And, or living in Downey and, and experiencing that and then having asthma, right? But I think the, I, think, I agree with you. I think there are just so many intersections that sometimes there are disconnects to um, in our industry or that aren't addressed. Um, and it's it's really unfortunate, but I think we are also in a pivotal time where these conversations are happening and they're not just momentum and hopefully they are, changing the industry around, right? Where there is more intersection and there are people within the studio who have this background and expertise because it is much needed. And I think just even, yeah, I actually have gone to both Pomona and Claremont. Uh, that's, that's where my partner's from. So, I, and you know, his, his actually his mother um, organizes for the POC in Pomona. If we look at, you know, Claremont, right? And it does have a lot more trees, then you're breathing fresher air, right? And if you're breathing fresh air, then your apartment complex might be okay and good, in good, in a good um condition. And then you that means that you're getting also a lot more, you know, air into through your windows, right? Whereas if you go to Pomona, all those conditions might be gone. I I, you know, I was recently thinking of specifically the going back to the shelter because I was wondering is there any research or is there anyone looking into what are the what are the lifelong impacts of someone who is housed like that whether it's you know transitional can mean six months to two years and what does that do right like when you have this eight by eight space where there's only your your bed and there is no shower or you have a small sink maybe and this is what you call home until the system decides that it's ready to take you into a permanent home where there's actual windows and, and air and there's a, a space for you to walk out to.
0: You know, I'm gonna research this because I don't know if there are studies that are looking specifically at transitional housing. Um, I had heard about smaller prefab homes being made I didn't know they, that these in particular did not have windows. Um, so I'm thinking about like b- body, mind, health in that way too, right? Um, so that's, that's gonna be my homework. I'm gonna look into it and then perhaps share what I find with you, Ashley. And we can invite other folks um, to like explore it in our show notes um, as far as resources. Just so that we can keep the conversation going.
1: Yeah, that's great. the The work never ends. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's and yeah, and I think especially in Los Angeles, it's like a very unique situation. Um, I think a lot of people look at Los Angeles like their ho- like our housing crisis is so horrible, and who would want to live in LA? And the rent prices are going up, etc. But it's like, when you really look at it, like it's it's a policy choice and the people that are meant to represent us keep things a certain way and let things go. It's like a very complex situation, but I think at the root of it, when we look at it, like we we're talking about, right? Like as professionals, like we we can be a part of the solution and it's our choice and it's um like our time that we dedicate to it. Um, I think within any, kind of um, arena of architecture that you, you practice because it all has like a domino effect. Um, so thank you, Shade. I really appreciate you going into that a little bit. Kind of on that same note about how we use our time and we dedicate our time, um, you kind of talked a little bit, Catherine, about how you really dedicate your time to outside organizations, outside of your working hours, right? Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing right now? That's still kind of in line with your values and with the with the work that you want to do.
2: Yeah. So um, let's see. So I sit on the NOMA board, right? And um, and that, that's exciting in itself because NOMA does a lot of advocacy for these same issues, and also to represent both of us who are minorities in the industry. Um. So I dedicate a lot of time to Noma. I think I did before a lot more than now. Um, I did a lot of, you know, project pipeline, uh, the summer camp, and I also I am on a think tank think tank for Ncar. So and, and that think tank in itself is to really create an equitable testing space for. My, not for everybody really, not just minorities, If you can talk about accessibility for those who have a disability, for those who don't have access to tech at home right now during the pandemic, right? But also um, I think we are having very critical conversations that are sometimes challenging for NCARB um, in regards to testing material, the cost of testing, and who who is who are the test takers, right? I don't know if you, if you had a chance to look at it at all, Ashley, but uh, NCARB really is NCARB by the numbers, right? And this data really extracted the amount of people who are taking a test, um, the people who register, who have a record, and then, or the people who fail a test and then don't move forward with, with, with testing at all. And a lot of the people that we see that fall through the cracks of becoming licensed are, are those who are minorities, right? And I felt like I was one of those people while I was testing because it was so expensive, and you know every every exam is like two hundred and something, and and then you have to buy study material for each section, and there are five sections, and you know every time you 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 fail, and they don't tell you what parts were your weakness or your strength, so you you don't know you have to study all over for everything, and and I think also with having A a test, we have a testing organization, but we don't have an organization that holds accountable the people who approve our hours, right? So, NCAR can say you have to log in X amount of hours, but they can't say if, let's say, actually at some point you're interning, right, and you have 30 hours, and then you're the principal or the architect who's responsible for signing off those hours, the site's not approved because you're leaving and they don't like that you're leaving. And this sounds funny, but it actually happened, right? Then NCARP can't step in. They don't step in to say, hey, you know, this person is like you've committed to this young person's uh, de- professional development and and this person has committed, you know, to 30 hours and you haven't signed off on them. They won't step in and do that. And there is no other org that will. So I think, um, which is why I, I'm on the think tank, really, like, I think there's a collective actually, you know, there's a think tank for developing professional, uh, developing testers, uh, people who have passed the exam, there's also exam writers, and there's like DEI, and then I would say there's a, a, overall, maybe a group of 80 people who are involved, and then out of 80, I found community with six of them who are kind of like, this is unfair, there's just not equitable, and we're all gonna be part of different committees in order to organize more people, right, on how we can talk about creating equitable testing spaces and also a path to licensure where minorities have more access to study material and scholarships or funding. And outside of NCARB, and I'm also a consultant for COCO, Right, which you are also uh, had the opportunity to engage with in, in one of our meetings, and um, so community coalition is developing a new building uh, it's called the Center for Community Organizing, also in South LA, and they um, the the vision for this building is to train organizers, people who will write policy, right, um, someone who is interested in, in the public sector and create kind of like a campus but that that serves for that but also it's flexible enough to create spaces um that are that are accessible by the community so if someone wants to have their podcast there right or uh you know um a library that has nice reading nooks and an outdoor area and there's a cafe um so it's something that is needed right and have been envisioned by the community and I've supported them through strategizing what does that look like and also create all the engagements, whether they're virtual or in person in order for those who live there to act, to really predict what they envision in in the community. So that has been very exciting. I also am part of Design of process and uh, part of being of process I would say actually I was, involved maybe heavily two years ago, two years ago, and I slowly have to step down just because of how many responses, you know, I can't part myself in like five different spaces, but designer's um, process I existed um, before, you know, the murder of George Floyd, but really I would say take off, took off after, um, and really the, you know, designer's process is a space to hold the profession accountable. It's co-organized by BIPOC by designers, and we want to reverse the violence and injustice that architecture, design, and urban planning practices have inflicted in our communities. And uh, we really champion the radical vision of racial, social, and cultural reparations through the process of outcomes of design. So, I mean, I think there are very me, you know, when I look at the demands that we are asking for, and I'll read you a few of them, but number three is is like abolishment of carceral spaces, um, you know, center community leadership in design and planning processes, uh, cultivate anti-racist vision for affordable and just neighborhoods. And out of these 10 demands, we have, I would say, different committees, right? So we have a committee that's dedicated to policy, another committee that's dedicated to youth youth organizing, and and I think through just that collective and in it, in it, oh, it, it has been powerful to not only create the demands and um, implement them into the firms that we work, right? Or that our colleagues work in, but also to connect in this virtual space with people across the country that are experiencing very similar disparities within our neighborhood. So I think that has been the, the really, you know, um, Uh, I would say, beautiful moment for me, right? Uh, Connecting with other folks and really learning from them and just uh, not feeling alone during this pandemic and, and being able to work through the issues that exist.
1: So I personally would say that this episode should be motivation enough for everyone to kind of look out at their respective communities and think about how they can Um, be more engaged with their neighbors, with their friends and really advocate on behalf of um, people within their communities or people outside of it. But I mean, you've kind of said it throughout the episode, but Catherine, I'd really love for you to kind of share, because this is what inspired me too, is like your kind of call to action, right? And like, even as professionals, we should still be dedicating our time and our efforts into advocating for, for vulnerable communities um there's a lot of people that ask you know like why should I care or like I don't have enough time to care um and I'd love for you to kind of share your two cents on that
2: yeah I yeah. think you know if you have a younger uh generation to care for whether it's your child I don't know who that younger person is you're just, I think you're doing it hopefully for them right because you don't want them to experience the same inequities as you I think the bigger picture would be what to create a better world who doesn't want to do that, you know, like why 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 fight? You know, why why be okay with what we just have? I think my my call to actually would be really to listen, right? to become a listener. I think that's the first big step to become a listener. And I think by listening and hopefully extracting the information and trying to understand and sit on it, that hopefully that will be your own call to action to do something with what you've listened and learned. I think we all are, our passions are different, right? And so it would be unfair for me to say, go find your local housing org or the, the center that does TV work, because we're not all passionate about that. But and if we're not, then we're not going to be driven and then we're doing this, we're creating the same cycle of the service. So I would say, listen, right? Uh, seek out what your interest is um, and learn learn from them and then take that information to do something with it. Don't let it sit with you. And also I think um, we need to stop being gatekeepers as, as in our profession. I think especially those older folks, right? I think making ourselves accessible and ensure what we've experienced as individuals and 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 also kind of sharing even i think the embarrassing part right i think for me the embarrassing part for a very long time was that i live in a, in a crappy apartment complex and just that my neighbor, like sometimes i couldn't sleep i couldn't get an eight hour sleep and that was embarrassing for me to share because i knew that everyone else was maybe okay but i think upon sharing that i found that a lot of us were experiencing that. And, and as we talked about it, I think it really became maybe not necessarily trauma bonding, but trauma sharing and, and really like what can we do about it now that we know that we've grown out of those spaces about them. So nobody else has to continue that cycle or or that trauma. So I would say become a learner, become a listener and, and take an and take action in whatever you find passion in.
1: Perfect. We got a lot of snaps, a lot of claps. Um, yeah, I think you put it perfectly. We're not all going to be passionate about the same thing, but that's why there's so many of us, I think, that we should all like very, um, very much focus on what we're passionate about and what makes sense to each of us respectfully. Um, we're going to head out. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. It, it's very exciting to have you as our first guest, and hopefully this isn't the last time that we have you uh, here to chat with us. So thank you, I really appreciate you.
2: Thank you, of course. It was great just chatting with you both and learning from you both. And honestly, I wanna take this conversation you know, and, and meet you both in person you know, and continue on. I think I think it is important for us to not only make that outreach that you need, actually, but also then I think when I say listen and learn, then my next step is, okay, how do I connect with both of you and, and, then, and hear you? like, you know, learn from you both
0: as well. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and your activism. And if it's possible, Ashley, can we include Catherine, if you're comfortable, um, how folks can follow your work, um, in the show notes?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yes.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you
1: both so much for today's, uh, conversation. I'm very excited for, you know, what will come out of it for folks listening. Thank you both. This has been Disrupting Place with Ashley, Dr. Shade, and Dr. Manuel. If you enjoyed this episode, support us by subscribing to the show, leaving us a rating and a comment, and sharing it with friends. For resources, readings, and more, please see our show notes and check out our Instagram at Disrupting Place.